you have your Bible this morning, I'd like to invite your attention to the book of Genesis, chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. And with our turning to Genesis chapter 10, we come to a new section in the book of Genesis. If you recall, we have marked off sections of Genesis with this phrase, the family records of or the generations of of a person. And so now as we turn our attention there to Genesis 10, the question becomes, what will the three sons of Noah do? What will they be like? And what will their legacy be? And so the previous section concluded with Noah's sin. We talked about that last week in Genesis chapter 9, and particularly with the sin of his son Ham. And so through that sin, Noah curses uh, Ham's youngest son Canaan and blesses Shem and Japheth. And so now as we come to this genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, we're going to see God working out the prophecy that was uttered by Noah based on the sin of Ham and the blessings pronounced upon Shem and Japheth. And so as we'll see, this genealogy in Genesis 10 is not an ordinary genealogy, what we might consider a boring genealogy, just a list of names to be skimmed over. But this genealogy is essential in understanding Noah's prophecy in Genesis 9, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, and the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. In fact, this while this genealogy may not seem significant on the surface, it is vitally important to understanding the central message of the book of Genesis. And so with that, we turn our attention to Genesis 10. And if you have found your place there, I would invite you to stand with me in honor of reading of God's Word. The Word of God says this, beginning in verse 1. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. Japheth's sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach and Tiras, Gomer's sons, Ashkenaz, Riftha, and Togermah, and Javan's sons, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these descendants, the people of the coasts and islands spread out into their lands according to their clans and their languages, excuse me, in their nations, each with its own language. Ham's sons, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan, Cusha's sons, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'ama, and Sabteca, and Ra'ama's sons, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be, a power, to, be, to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and the great city Kalah. Mizraim fathered the people of Lud, Anam, Lehab, Naphtu, Pathrus, Kaslu, the Philistines came from them, and Kaphtor. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, as well as the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the Canaanite clans scattered. 
The Canaanite border went from Sidon going, going toward Gerar as far as Geza and going toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are Ham's son by their clans, according to their languages, and their lands and their nations. And Shem, Japheth's older brother, also had sons. Shem was the father of all the sons of Eber. Shem's sons were Elam, Asher, Arpikshad, Lud, and Aram. Aram's sons Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash fathered Eber. Excuse me, Arpikshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. Eber had two sons. One was named Peleg, for during his days on the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan, and Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, and Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jabab. All of these were Joktan's sons. They settled, their settlements extended from Misha to Jafar, the eastern hill country. These are Shem's sons by their clans, according to their languages, in their lands and their nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their family records and their nations. The nations on earth spread out from these after the flood. May God bless the imperfect reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, as we study Genesis, it's important to be reminded from time to time that Moses is writing to the people of Israel as they have just been redeemed out of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness and they are making preparations to take the land of Canaan. You see, in the book of Genesis, God is reminding his people of their origins. He's reminding them of the promises that God has made to their forefathers, and he is showing them their role in redemptive history. And so although this is a book written to Israel and for Israel concerning their role in redemptive history, in Genesis, God still has the entire world and all the nations in view. That's what this genealogy helps us to see. The focus on the nations in chapter 10 might seem strange in a book written for the people of Israel, especially when the many nations listed are enemies of Israel. And so we might ask the question then, why is there an account of the scattering of the nations abroad throughout the world? Well, in writing to the people of Israel, he's showing them that God is going to work through Shem's line, through Abraham, and through them as the people of Israel to bring salvation and redemption, not only for the people of Israel, but for the nations. And so as Genesis is, a, is about to turn towards one particular family and the work that, is God, that God is going to do through them and for them, before that, he reminds them that God is not only a God of Israel, but he is a God of the nations. One author says this, soon the revelation of the Lord was to be restricted to the circles of Abraham's descendants. But before this revelation bids the nations farewell, all of them pass once more in review. And so that's primarily how Genesis 10 fits within the context of the book of Genesis. Before we're introduced to Abraham and, and the work of God through Abram, 
God brings the nations before us to remind us that through Abram and the promises made to him and the covenants with him, God has not forgotten the nations and it's through those blessings and through those covenants and through those promises that God is going to bestow blessings on the nations as well. And so this passage puts the nations in the context of the book of Genesis, but it also does something, I think, larger than that, in that it shows us the connection between all the peoples of the earth and Noah. It says in Genesis chapter 9, we looked at that passage last week, Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. There is a unity of ancestry for all the peoples of the world going back to the one man, Noah. And because all human beings share a common ancestry, then all human beings share a a common problem. Let's consider again the effects of sin that have been inherited with all men. There is death both natural and spiritual, and we have seen that play out on the pages of Genesis, both the natural death of all of those, both in the line of the ungodly and the line of the godly, but the spiritual death has been made abundantly clear by the depravity that we have observed, particularly in the flood narrative. God says there that the intentions of the human heart are wicked continually, and it says that wickedness and violence filled the earth as the earth becomes corrupt in God's sight. And so all of humanity descends from this one family and all of humanity shares a common sin nature. Humanity is united in both origin and sinfulness. But this passage is not only about the unity of humanity from one family, but the spreading of humanity out after the flood. That's what we read at the end of Genesis chapter 10. It's the nations spreading out from these men after the flood. And so the human race is united in origin, united in their sinfulness, but now they're being divided by language and territory. But all of this is a part of God's plan and design to bring blessings to the human race through the offspring of Abraham. And so God works through the brokenness and division of humanity to bring about hope for the nations. And so if you're following along and taking notes this morning, we really only have one point in our outline, and it's this. God sovereignly divides the nations for his purposes of redemption. God sovereignly divides the nations for his purposes of redemption. You see, this is not merely an account of the genealogical division of humanity and their spreading out throughout the world. This is a story of God setting a stage upon which the story of redemption is going to unfold. When we think of genealogies, we think of Ancestry.com or something of the like where we can go for purely informational sake to find out our heritage just for the sake of interest, but not here. Here in Genesis chapter 10, we see that God is setting a stage upon which he is going to show his glory to the nations through one man and through his family. God is showing his sovereign working among the nations. This genealogy is not merely 
uh, given here for the interest of the people of Israel to read some backstory and heritage of the ancient world. No, this is showing us that God is not only going to work in Israel and through Israel, but for the nations. And so if we take this section in its context, we can see that a little bit better. The genealogy is connected first to the context behind it in Genesis chapter 9. Remember, there's uh, this flood that's happened and destroyed the entire world, but God has made a promise never again to destroy the world by a flood. And He takes Noah and his sons and He blesses them and He pronounces a common grace blessing and covenant upon them to say, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Humanity is here in Genesis 10 thriving under the blessing and the covenant that was made with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 10 shows us that God is granting the grace to carry out the blessing that He has given them in Genesis 9. God is prospering that which He promised to prosper. But contextually, Genesis 10 is intimately linked to what comes after in Genesis chapter 11. Some of you who may be familiar with the book of Genesis will know that chapter 11 contains the story of the Tower of Babel. And Lord willing, next week we're going to look to that account in Genesis chapter 11. But chapter 10 and chapter 11 work closely together, telling us really two sides of the same story. Chapter 10 and chapter 11 both give us the dispersal of the nations, but in different senses. When we come to the Tower of Babel and the people of the earth are scattered in judgment and their languages are confused, we should think back to Genesis chapter 10 to know specifically who got scattered where. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 10. You might think of chapter 10 as telling us the way things are, And chapter 11 tells us how things got to be that way. You might think of a movie that you might watch. Some of you may have seen a movie that begins telling you something that's going to happen later in the day or later in the week. And then it will flash back and say 24 hours earlier or seven days earlier. And then it tells you all the backstory to how they got to that point. Well, this is exactly what Moses does here in Genesis. He tells us where everything's going to end up. And then in chapter 11, he backs up and tells us how the nations got to be scattered in this way. One author said it this way, you can think of chapter 10 as a sort of ethnogeographic explanation for the peoples of the earth. In other words, where everybody is. And then chapter 11 is the theological rationale, why God has ordained it to be this way. Chapter 10 tells us how God divided the people over the earth. Chapter 11 tells us why he did so. And so God is acting both in grace and in judgment to spread the nations out over the earth. And that's why this genealogy is different than all the genealogies we've seen so far in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 4 and in Genesis 5, we saw these genealogies that traced linearly in one line, a line from Adam down to Noah or from Cain down to his sons. And so we read there about these genealogies that recount individual persons that were primarily concerned, those genealogies were primarily concerned with tracing the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman as promised in Genesis 3.15. But here... This genealogy is less concerned with individual persons as much as it is with the places and the peoples that came from those 
persons. We have listed here specific individuals, starting with Shem, Ham, Japheth, the sons of Noah, and many of their descendants. But we also have peoples that are named in this genealogy. You can read down there about the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Gergesites. These are groups of people that would come from Canaan. But we also have places here, places that are well known to us in the Old Testament. Babylon and Assyria and Nineveh, Sodom and Gomorrah. These are a few places that we read about over and over again in the Old Testament. All of these are included here in Genesis 10 because this genealogy is not designed to be merely a genealogy as the ones we've seen before. And so the point of chapter 10 is not so much to trace out the line of the woman and the line of the serpent, but it is an account of the nations spreading out after the flood as God sovereignly works among them to accomplish His will and His purposes. Now, when we hear that word nations, we likely think of an organized government, a sovereign state, uh, like we might think of the term nations in our modern times. But the Bible has something a little different in mind when we read the English word nation. It's, it helps us, I think, to read some of the terms that are fit together here in Genesis 10 to understand what's being communicated by the nations of the earth that spread out from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Look at verse 5 of Genesis 10. It says, from these descendants, the people of the coasts and islands spread out into their lands according to their clans and their nations, each with its own language. We find similar language at the end of Ham's line in verse 20. It says, these are Ham's sons by their clans according to their languages in their lands and their nations. And we find the same thing again in verse 31. There's lands, clans, nations, and languages. And so taken together, these four words, I think, describe something that we might refer to as a tribe. One author describes it this way. Some of these are small localized tribes and some of them grew to be powerful, almost empires in their own right, but they have their own cultural, geographical, tribal identity. That's what we mean here when we refer to the nations of the earth. These aren't organized governments with set territories. These are people groups that are associated by their language, land, culture, and origins, and they're much smaller than we might think of when we think of nations. And so the Bible gives us these four terms describing the people groups that are descending from Noah. And I think it's interesting that Moses uses four terms to describe them because the number four or four things is used throughout the Bible to, uh, to, to show us, uh, to represent totality of something in the Bible. For example, you might hear in the prophets in Isaiah about the four corners of the earth that the dispersed of Judah are going to be gathered together in Jerusalem from the four corners of the earth. This isn't a comment on the geography of the earth or whether the earth is round or flat. It's a comment regarding that people from all over the globe, all over the world are going to be gathered to Jerusalem. Revelation 20 uses the same language when it describes Satan being released from his prison and going out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Jesus uses similar language in Mark chapter 13 when he refers to the four winds of the earth. He says there that the Son of Man will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of 
heaven. And so these four winds represent the totality of the globe by referencing the four winds that would blow from north, south, east, and west. There's winds blowing from all over the world, and God is going to gather his people from them. It's interesting that the same fourfold designation is used in the book of Revelation, a verse that we might all be familiar with. There in Revelation 7, verse 9, the scripture says this. John looked and he says, And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so here it's numbering a people that is innumerable from all over the world, a people of every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. People and nation. And so here, the number four in Genesis 10 represents the totality of people groups on the earth from Japheth, Ham, and Shem. All the people groups of the earth spread out. And so this is by no means an exhaustive list of all the nations, all the people groups that exist on the earth now or all the people groups that existed on the earth then. Rather, we're seeing that there are these people of every tongue, tribe, clan, and nation that are um, spreading out over all the earth. This is representative of all people peoples on earth and they all come from the line of Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Now here is where we really don't want to lose the forest for the trees because there's a lot of good historical information out there that can trace all of these different families and all of these different people and show where they ended up. But we want to take a step above that and look at a bird's eye view of what God is doing here through these three men. We read of the line of Japheth there in verse 2. It says in verse 2, Japheth's sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. And we could go on to read, but there are these sons and grandsons and peoples that come out of Japheth. And so the people of Israel are receiving this, but this is the shortest list that is given to them because this is the peoples that are farthest from them. These are the people of Japheth that spread it out farthest on the earth. They were most distant from what's going to happen in Shem and from Abraham. These are sometimes referred to as the Indo-European people. They spread out to Europe and to Asia, covering the globe, widely spreading out from Noah's family. And this attests, I think, to the accuracy of Noah's prophecy in Genesis 9, where he says, let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. That name Japheth means to enlarge. And so the tents of Japheth is enlarged to cover the whole globe. They spread out broadly across the earth's territory. And so this line doesn't show up too much in the Old Testament, but rather they come into play later in the New Testament. And so we have here a list of seven sons of Japheth and then seven grandsons for a total of 14 descendants of Japheth. God is sovereignly working in the line of Japheth among the nations. But when we get to verses 6 and 7, we have the line of Ham. And we read there in verse 6, it says that Ham's sons, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan, Cush's sons, Seba, Havilah, Sabta. And Ra'amah and Sabtaka and Ra'amah's sons, Sheba and 
Dedan. And so we have this list of names of the sons and grandsons of Ham. These are the people that are going to interact extensively with Abraham's offspring, Israel. They were Israel's nearest neighbors. They settled in Egypt and Mesopotamia and uh, parts of North Africa. And so in Ham, we read in this section of the genealogy of some of Israel's biggest enemies. We read of Egypt, or, or Mizraim would be a reference to Egypt there, to Canaanites, to Babylon, and to Nineveh. And so Canaan gets a lengthy treatment here because they're going to be the closest and most fervent enemies of the people of Israel. We read of several tribes that come out of the line of Canaan. And so Israel's enemies in the time of Moses and Joshua are given lengthy treatment here in Canaan's offspring because it explains the origins of these people to Israel as they prepare to conquer the land that God had promised to them. As they are preparing to make this uh, conquering of Canaan, God is explaining to them the origins of these people that they will conquer but among this line there is one man singled out there in verse 8 his name is Nimrod and that name Nimrod means we shall rebel and I think this foreshadows the rebellion of chapter 11 and of the tower of Babel the rebellion and the idolatry that we see present there against God but Nimrod is the founder of some of the most impressive cities and civilizations listed in this chapter, but it tells us there that he began to be a hunter or a warrior in the earth. And that name, hunter or warrior, really, I think, means tyrant in the Hebrew. It refers to his viciousness, that he is a violent warrior and a manslayer. The hunting that he's doing here in Genesis 10 is not for animals but of men. And so Nimrod is being closely associated with both Cain and Lamech from Genesis chapter 4. He's of the line of the serpent. He is of the offspring of the serpent. And he is a violent man who is slaying men. And he's doing this before the Lord. That phrase, before the Lord, probably refers to the hostility of, uh, of the openness of his hostility before Yahweh. In other words, Nimrod is flaunting his human prowess he was so powerful in fact that it became a proverbial saying among the people of Israel that he was that a man would be like Nimrod a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord and so Nimrod is not only tyrannical and oppressive but he founds these grand cities that will also rebel against God and attack his people you might think of the entirety of the Old Testament and the interaction that the people of God have with both Babylon and with Assyria and so he builds all of these civilizations for his own glory and Nimrod is given here just as Lamech was given in the line of uh, Cain and as uh, as Enoch and Noah were given in the lines of Seth he's given as a characteristic person in the line of Ham this is what they're like he exemplifies the characteristic traits of the line of Ham, they will be known for self-glorying violence and idolatry. This is the line of Ham. And if we were to total all of the names mentioned here in the line of Ham, we get 30 descendants. And so God is sovereignly working even among the enemies of his people to accomplish his redemptive purposes. 
And finally, we come to the line of Shem, and Moses has saved this chosen line for last, consistent with Noah's prophecy that he will bless Shem. And so he works in from Japheth, those most distant from Israel, to those closest. And we read of the line of Ham there in verse 21 on down through the end of the chapter, but it primarily focuses on this man, Aparkshad, and his line. We read of them there in verse 24. In verse 24, it says, Aparkshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber, and Eber fathered two sons, who was named Peleg, for during his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. So we have these two offspring of Eber, and just as Nimrod is singled out and mentioned in the line of Ham, so Peleg is singled out in his line of Sham. The name Peleg means division, and it says this because in his days the earth was divided. Now this is a reference forward again to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, the peoples of the earth will be divided or dispersed across the earth after the events of the Tower of Babel. It was during the days of Peleg that the people were divided and dispersed on earth because of what happened at the Tower of Babel. And so Peleg's genealogy does not continue here. It's going to be continued after the events of chapter 11 because it will lead to Terah, the father of Abram. If we counted up all the names of the genealogy of Shem, we would get 26 descendants. Here again, God is sovereignly working among the nations to accomplish His redemptive purposes. This is the table of nations. And from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all of the nations of the earth spread out after the flood. And God is sovereignly at work amongst them to accomplish His redemptive purposes. Now, one way that we see that is if we were to take the number of the people listed here, 14 in Japheth, 30 from Ham and 26 for Shem, we have a total number of 70 descendants that are mentioned here. And I think that's significant because in the Scriptures, often the number 70 or the number 7 is representative of a complete number. It's representative of fullness, of totality. And so here we have represented the totality of the nations of the earth. It's comparable to the number, as we'll see in a few minutes, to those descendants of Israel that are brought into Egyptian bondage. It says that the people of Israel who went down to Egypt were numbered 70. And so there's a correlation there. There's a fullness of the people of God that are going in there. And there's a fullness of the nations of the earth that are represented here stylistically in Genesis chapter 10. And so we see what Genesis 10 communicates to us. But now the question remains, why does that matter to us? What is God showing us here in Genesis chapter 10? Well, one, I think He's showing us that God is a God of the nations, not only the God of Israel. One author says it this way, the theological value of this table is that it affirms Israel as part of one world governed by God. This is underscored by the complete omission of the people of Israel in this table. We're going to see them after the Tower of Babel as they come into view. But here we read that they are completely omitted from this table. 
If we didn't look at chapter 11, we would have no idea where Israel belonged in this table of nations. One author says there was a world of peoples before the call of Abraham, and it is that map of peoples that concerns the God of Abraham ultimately. Out of the concern for the salvation of nations, God calls Abraham and his posterity. This table of nations shows us that God is concerned not only for the people of ethnic Israel, but he is concerned with the nations of the earth to bring them to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also shows us that God is sovereign over even the rebellious nations. You see, it's important to keep in mind that the godless cities that Nimrod built of Nineveh and of Babylon would oppress the people of Israel all their days and that there would be cities like Sodom and Gomorrah that would raise up in grotesque rebellion against God. But here, all the way back in Genesis 10, we have an anchor point to remind us that God is sovereign even over the rebellious states against His will. What a comfort for the people of God, especially those that were in Babylonian exile and those that were being oppressed by Nineveh, they can be reminded back in Genesis 10, God said He is sovereign over them. He has placed them where they are. Even their reckless, powerful, tyrannical founder was operating under the sovereign hand of God. And we also recognize that God will bring that rebellion to an end. I think there's a reason at the end of the Scriptures that John uses the term Babylon to refer to the fallen world system. And he cries out, an angel cries out there in Revelation chapter 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. God has pronounced judgment on her. He is going to rid the earth of her wickedness and rebellion. But the call then to the people of God as he says, but you come out of her. Remove yourself from her. Not that you're not in the world and around the people of Babylon, but the reminder for us is that the world and Babylon and the rebellious nations of God delight themselves in the vanity and violence and sensuality of the world. And we have a tendency to be drawn into these things. But we must stay away from them. We must come out of those things. We must remove ourselves from Babylon, from Nineveh, and from the rebellious nations of the world to be in the world, but not of the world. God is sovereign over these rebellious nations. But we also see that God's message of salvation is for the nations. You see, I think Paul has Genesis 10 in mind when he reads and he speaks there to the people of Athens in Acts chapter 17. He says there to them, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and their boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then, we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image fashioned by human art and imagination. We see God's sovereign division of the nations in Genesis 10 ultimately results in the bearing of fruit of many coming to be saved from the nations in the New Testament. God is going to redeem a people of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And uh, the Apostle Paul, the 
apostle to the Gentiles is taking that message to them, going to the people of Athens and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. We have the promise of God's Word beginning in Genesis 3 going all the way through the end of the book of Revelation that God through the nations will accomplish His sovereign purposes to redeem a people for Himself. As I referenced earlier, we read there in Revelation chapter 5 as we see the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, postured there before the very throne of God. We read the praises that are sung to Him. They sing a new song. It says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased the people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And later on in Revelation 7, John sees a people of every tongue, tribe, and nation that is standing before the throne. They are clothed in white robes. There's a number of people that he could not number himself. And they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. There's a people from every nation mentioned in Genesis 10 and every nation that exists in the earth that is going to stand shoulder to shoulder before the throne room of God And praise His name because before the foundation of the world, He appointed that He was going to redeem a people for Himself and for His glory. And brothers and sisters, we are numbered among them. What a joy it is to think of the glories of heaven and seeing the very throne of God and people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation standing around us crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God and to Him alone. What a What a faithfulness of God that He has fulfilled the prophecy of Noah concerning Japheth that Gentiles like you and I have been grafted into the people of God and been brought into the tents of Shem that we might enjoy the blessings of God and His salvation. Oh, you're here this morning. Are you numbered among them? Are you numbered among those that will stand around the throne of God and sing praises to His name? Salvation for the nations is accomplished through one man, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There is not a Savior for the people of Israel and the Savior for the people who live in America or whatever tribe you want to associate yourself with. There certainly is not a Savior within yourselves that you're going to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and merit the grace of God. There is one salvation. There is one name given among men whereby we must be saved and that is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Remember, We all share in a common ancestry. And if we share in a common ancestry, we share in the common problem. And that is we are all dead in our trespasses and sins before God. We are all sons of Noah, sons of Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And all of us, the nations of the earth, will stand before God on the last day. He has appointed, Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God has 
made the world. He has made the nations. He has sovereignly overseen their spreading throughout the world so that through their spreading there might be a gospel call going out to them that Jesus saves sinners. Those who are going to stand before the throne of God in judgment on the last day from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation have a salvation that is available to them in Christ Jesus who has died on the cross to take our sins upon him and shed his blood to appease the wrath of God against us. And so Paul says, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. All of those throughout the world, all of those sons of Ham, Shem, and Japheth are commanded now, repent. Turn from your sin, turn from your iniquity, and look to the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Call upon that name that God has given the name above every name. Call upon the name of Christ and you shall be saved. God's sovereign plan is to give a salvation to the nations. But finally, dear church, we see that the mission of the church should reflect God's concern for the nations. The mission of the church should reflect God's concern for the nations. Everywhere in the Bible, starting here in Genesis 10, we see God is not only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is no mere local deity, but He is the God of the nations and the God of the entire world, the maker of heavens and earth. And so He has appointed that there would be a salvation, a proclamation of the Gospel that will be taken to these nations. And it is according to the fullness of them. Remember, there's 70 nations that are mentioned here in Genesis chapter 10. The Gospel will go forth to the fullness of them in their entirety. That's why Moses draws a connection between them and the 70 sons of Israel that are brought into Egypt in Genesis 46. He says in Deuteronomy 32, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race, that's a reference to Genesis 10 and 11, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the people of Israel. Now, why would Moses say that he set their boundaries according to the number of the people of Israel? He's connecting Genesis 46 and the 70 sons that go down into Egypt and the 70 nations that are represented in Genesis chapter 10. And so what we see there is that in Israel, there are 70 persons who go into Egypt as a representative microcosm of the nations. 70 representing their fullness to correspond with the 70 of the nations and the fullness of the nations because one, the 70 of Israel are going to have a mission to the other. The 70 sons of Israel are going to go down into Egyptian bondage, but they're going to come out as the people of God with a mission to the 70 nations. What Moses is helping us to see here is that God is going to bless the nations through Israel. There was a world of people before Abraham, and it is now through Abraham that God is going to save these people. Jesus, likewise, I think, borrows from this in the New Testament. If you're familiar with Luke's account in uh, chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke, we read that Jesus sends out disciples to cast out those demons and heal the sick and to preach the Gospel. And there, He sends out 
Some of your translations may read 70 and some of them may read 72. If you have a King James this morning, I think that the King James translators get it right. I think that there are 70 disciples that are sent out to preach the gospel. And Jesus did not choose randomly to send out 70 people. No, he's making a connection to the 70 nations of Genesis 10 and the 70 sons of Israel in Genesis 46. The disciples are going out with the message of the gospel, not only to preach to the lost tribes of Israel, but ultimately to reclaim and to regather the 70 nations of the earth. Jesus commissions 70 evangelists to go out into the earth to take the gospel to the nations. God has has given us such a grand vision for global missions to take the gospel to all the nations and all the people groups of the earth. Therefore, Jesus says after his resurrection, go therefore into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Dear church, God is going to save a people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. He is going to save the nations. There's going to be a people innumerable brought before the throne of God by the saving grace of God alone. And yet He has invited us into this mission to be the means by which God is going to reclaim the nations. Those whom He has dispersed throughout the earth, the church is appointed to be the means through which God is going to gather them again to himself on the last day oh church let us be faithful to that mission beginning here in our local area and through the uttermost parts of the world that we may proclaim the good news of christ that god is saving a people of all the nations for himself and so we see dear church the sovereign working of god among the nations through His division and separation of humanity, He is ultimately working to bring a people to Himself. God, from the very beginning, has planned to bring salvation to the nations through the one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He has charged His church to declare this message to them. So let's go to Him in a word of prayer. Lord, we... Thank you for this genealogy that is given in Genesis 10. That perhaps all of us at one point have read through mindlessly, absently, not thinking about its importance and significance to us. Father, we pray this morning that you would bring it to bear on our hearts. Help us to understand that the nations that you have made and divided and spread out across the world, these people groups that are culturally bound and brought together by a common language, you have commanded us to go forth and take the gospel to them. Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness, confidence, grace, and help to do just that. Father, I pray that you would help our minds and our vision regarding missions to be larger than just our own backyard and that it would uh, grow to be as big as your vision for the world to save a people of every tongue, tribe, and nation for yourselves. And Father, for the one here this morning that may be trusting in their own goodness and trusting in their own works and trusting in their ability to save themselves on the last day, to stand justly before you, would you show them clearly that the sovereign God who will judge all the nations will judge them as well? 
Lord, will you show them that there is salvation in none other than the one Christ Jesus? That if they would repent of their sins and turn in faith to Jesus, they would be saved. That they would be numbered among those who will cry out, salvation belongs to God alone. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.